If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, we do need your direct support to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. And that is the power of the collective. So join us today as a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support. I've been saying that, you know, the state is coming back, but the open question is what form will it take? Will it be a, a repressive police state or will, will it be a state rooted in planning and redistribution and increasingly serving the collective whole rather than the oligarchic few through repression, et cetera. And what, what has happened is that indeed, one crisis after the other, the state has come forward and been forced into the breach to to kind of patch capitalism back up and relaunch it, but not in a progressive fashion, in a, an increasingly authoritarian and top-down way. Today, we're speaking with Christian Parenti, a professor of economics at John Jay College, City University of New York. His undergraduate and graduate teaching and research focus on American economic history, environmental history, and the history of capitalism, climate change and sustainable energy, as well as war, policing, and political violence. His books include Radical Hamilton and Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. And previously as a journalist, he reported extensively from Afghanistan, Iraq, and various parts of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So the idea of the catastrophic convergence is essentially looking at how climate change interacts with the pre-existing crises of the legacy of U.S. imperialism and Cold War militarism and neoliberal economic restructuring, both of which, I mean, they do two things. That legacy of, of the Cold War and then the war on terror and primarily American-led Western war-making has littered the global South, but not exclusively. The Soviet Union played a role in that too but primarily the West has littered the global South with weapons and primarily groups of men who know how to use weapons and have the, the skills of surveillance and smuggling that are useful for warfare, but also crime and other types of social breakdown. So the, the bad military policy of most of the post-World War II era primes the global south for instability at the same time there is from the end of world war ii until the early 70s a commitment from the western american-led side of the cold war there's a commitment to developing capitalism in the global south it's not a commitment to an egalitarian social system it's not a vision of social justice, but there is because of the existence of the Soviet adversary and the whole Eastern Bloc and the threat of a good example coming from socialist economies, there's real concern with among the many tools the US 
is using against the Soviet Union. There is also concern with making the capitalist model work and deliver a little something for the people at the bottom while it delivers profits and tremendous fortunes for the people at the top. So there's actually some real development in the global south from the end of World War II until about the mid-70s. And a lot of that development you can critique, you can critique for its horrible environmental impacts and stuff like that. But there was like, you know, raising standards of living are raised in many places. There's real infrastructure built. But with the profit crisis of the 1970s, the West turns away from that developmentalist view and really starts imposing in the 1980s, beginning with the Latin American debt crisis, starts imposing severe forms of economic restructuring and austerity in the global South. And this marks essentially an undoing of a previous development model, an undoing, a scrapping of embedded liberalism in the global South, a scrapping of a kind of developmentalist element to the global counterinsurgency against socialism and communism. And the replacement of that with a smash and grab asset stripping model of accumulation based on plunder. And that's neoliberalism. So that really kicks in with the Latin American debt crisis beginning in 1981, 80, And those, those policies of austerity in the face of unacceptable, unpayable debts in the global South cracks open and smashes to pieces one economy after another in the global South begins with Mexico and Argentina. And by the early 90s, they're doing this same process to Kenya. And by 2012, this process of smashing and, and eliminating any trace of social democratic political economic policy in places like Greece begin, you know, 2011, that, that Greece is treated the way Mexico was treated in, in the early 80s. So this whole process of neoliberal economic restructuring adds into, you know, comes on top of, rides along with the legacy of Cold War militarism, and it totally destabilizes the society. It increases inequality, making some people really rich, not very many people, but some people really rich, most people very increasingly very, very poor. And it, it interacts with the legacy of Cold War militarism to create real destabilization. And then now... Increasingly comes the third destabilizing ingredient of extreme weather caused by climate change, droughts, floods, the effect on crops, food prices, infrastructure, and transportation links that all of that creates. And so the interaction of those three forces is what I call a catastrophic convergence. And it is active in, in terms of the story of Tropic of Chaos the book unpacks how these three forces interact always differently in different places with sort of local variances. Like in, in Afghanistan, economic restructuring is not really that important because Afghanistan never went through a classic neoliberal economic restructuring. But the destabilizing effects of Cold War militarism are extremely important. Yeah. The Soviets invade, they occupy, they, they uh, keep on life support, an Afghan socialist government. And the U.S. in turn, along with Saudi Arabia, pours something like $9 billion through Pakistan into the Afghan theater to fund the seven parties of the Mujahideen who are fighting the Soviets and the Afghan communists. Right. And so the situation in Afghanistan now, and that's sort of where the book began, was, uh, was researching opium cultivation, poppy cultivation, and the opium trade in Afghanistan. And farmers would again and again say that, well, part of why we grow poppy is that we're living through this severe drought. And, uh, you know, I didn't know, I couldn't quite tell, tell that there was a drought because a lot of the places were sort of high mountain desert. They look, they look kind of like parts of New Mexico and Colorado, like green, green valleys, maybe not even Colorado. I don't know Colorado very well. But, you know, they can be quite dry mountains and then these belts of green fed by these glaciers. And so you look at it, it's like, how am I? The whole place looks extremely dry to me. I wouldn't know the difference. And sure enough, Afghanistan is going through the worst drought in 100 years. So they're saying part of why we, we grow poppy is because of this environmental crisis. And it's, 
it's a good crop because it's very drought resistant. So I realized, oh, okay, part of what's fueling this war, which really has very little to do with climate change at first glance, but part of what's fueling it is the fact that there's embedded within the war, a war on this drug crop. And why are the farmers so tenaciously sticking to it? And why are the farmers who are sticking to that crop willing to support the Taliban? Because the government's attacking them because it's a drug crop, it's an illegal crop, and the occupiers, the U.S. primarily, don't want this, this drug crop produced and exported. But underneath all that, there's clearly a climate angle to it. So that's what the catastrophic convergence is. But in other places, it's, it's quite different. In Brazil, for example, there was never any war. There was a, you know, there was a small bit of guerrilla activity and counterinsurgency, but the primary issue there is economic restructuring, right? The neoliberal economic restructuring, which has weakened the state. And the two things that happened with the military, the, the military aspect of this and the, and the economic, the austerity aspect of it is the military aspect of it kind of malforms the shape, the state, sorry. And then the neoliberal economic restructuring weakens and pulverizes the state, reduces its footprint, opens it up to capture and corruption. Put those two together and then add climate change. That's sort of what the book's about. That's a long, winding answer. Yeah. yeah, so certainly it shows up differently in every places, but it's important to look at how these different factors, climate change, the legacy of Cold War militarism and neoliberal economic restructuring, how these things come together to create the conditions for the various power dynamics and social conflicts of today. And there's this common acknowledgement that in our current dominant economic system, a dead tree is worth more than a living one. And that generally speaking, extraction and exploitation are more profitable than healing and assigning greater value to labor and our full sense of humanity beyond productivity. So this becomes sort of the underlying incentive of the system that we're in, because the system orients us towards endless economic growth that by nature privileges and empowers the corporations and institutions that extract and exploit the most. And it also by nature leads us down a path towards ecological degradation with those at the top being disproportionately shielded and protected from those crises. But what I've struggled to comprehend and process is how exactly our economic and political systems have come to define value in such a reductive way, and what it is that even determines value for the system that then creates the incentives for collective destruction and exploitation. So how have you thought through this using your multidisciplinary lens and your view that the state should be understood as an inherently environmental entity at the heart of the value form? and as central to our understanding of the valorization or valuing process. So, I mean, the system, as you're referring to it, I mean, is capitalism, right? Let's, let's be clear about it. And the value system, the kind the ideological, the moral landscape you describe is rooted in a set of material practices that I think Marxism best explains. And that is that under the regime of prices and money, I mean, this is my synopsis of Marxist value theory, that when the value of money, historically speaking, becomes dominant, it starts defining the entire character of the, of the, of the society. So you can think of capital as... You know, capital is a thing, but it's also a social relation. And it is the private ownership of the means of production, the employment of free labor for the production of commodities that are then sold and uh, the employment through the purchase of labor power of free labor rather than the kind of non-economic command of slave labor, right? So it's the private ownership of the means of production, which happens in non-capitalist social forms as well, but it's the private ownership of the means of production that then commands labor power through the power of money, purchasing labor power as a commodity to produce other commodities that are then sold into markets that then return to the capitalist, the investor, more money than they began with. And that social circuit between 
the owner of tools and land, the means of, of production, and the owners of labor, workers of labor power, mediated by money for resolution realization in markets that then return money, that is the sort of like the germ cell, the cancer cell of capital as a social relation. It comes to define but not completely dominate a form of society that we call capitalism. There is within that the capitalist class, which is the ruling class that owns the majority of the means of production and calls the shots fundamentally in that society, but not always in the way they want. And, and they, don't, they don't rule exclusively. They're constantly trying to broker control of society and everyday life with the working class who are the majority and who resist unconsciously and informally through malingering and quitting and deviance and failure to adhere to the value system, whatever, and formally through trade unions and rebellions, etc. And there are factions in the capitalist class. Capitalist society is full of conflict and chaos. But what the fundamental problem is this, this set of arrangements that we call capitalism that has at its heart this cancer cell, which is capital as a social relation. It is continually reproduced. The system is continually reproduced through the political agency of the capitalist class, which is itself never fully united, but unites primarily within national projects and thus is constantly reproduced by the state. My most recent book, Radical Hamilton, Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder, is all about the hidden in plain sight role of the American state in the production of American capitalism. So that is, those are the conditions that we live in. This is a relatively, historically speaking, new social system. It emerges in the 1600s, really. I mean, there's, all, there's elements of capitalism all throughout ancient history. In Rome, which is primarily a, a slave society, there, there's also wage labor. There are artisans who produce commodities to sell for cash return in markets. But most people are serfs or slaves, and most of the production is rural in nature. And those the social relations that we now realize as kind of defining capitalism are minority components of the overall ensemble of, of ancient Rome, for example. I mean, the way this translates then into ecological crisis is that there are real material incentives, getting back to your point about dead tree being worth more than a living tree. There are immediate material rewards in the form of money, which is social power. You can do all sorts of things with money. So that's why. And investors need a return on their money or it will lose its value. And so beyond any kind of moral or ethical concern that an investor might have, they, they have this material economic imperative, which is to at least not have their savings lose value. That alone forces competition. It forces a search for more and more profits, more and more value extraction. And the crucial thing about that germ cell of capital is that the capitalist only makes a return on their investment if they pay the laborer more than the value that the laborer produces with their labor power. So that means mm. there's a, a structural built-in drive towards exploitation of labor. If a capitalist advances $1 of raw materials and means of production and then pays $1 for whatever a dollar's worth of labor time is, and they produce those two dollars are destroyed in the process of production and they produce three dollars worth of value and take only one to replace their spent capital and give the other two dollars to the wage laborer as wages then there will be no profit no surplus value surplus value comes from keeping one of those dollars the third dollar has to go 
to the capitalist to advance the first $2, even though the new value that's produced in the production process is actually produced by the labor power of the laborer. So that habit, that social force of exploitation, of keeping that third dollar rather than giving it to those who produced it, that's not just the result of a bad attitude. It's not just the result of greed and people being nasty. It's a structural imperative in a world where markets are managing the, the surplus for individuals, for households, for institutions, and they're all expected to have as much as they put in or more when they need those, those returns. And thus, there's a, while there's an, you know, a huge question of like the corrosive moral effects of capitalism, that's all very real. It, I'm just saying like, it can't be reduced to that. You can't, you can't, think that a bunch of nice capitalists could get this to work in a fundamentally different way. They couldn't. It would have to still be the same system. And these different units of capital, these businesses are in competition with each other. If you do not ruthlessly compete for as a business owner to accumulate at least some or significant portions of surplus value, you run the risk of losing out in these competitive markets. You can have your market share taken from you and you can be driven into economic extinction if you can't maintain production at the rate of profitability that you want. And you know your competitor could come in and then just lower prices and wipe you out. So you have to be able to defend yourself by having these margins, being able to expand and you know, move against your competitors. So there's all sorts of dynamics like that in the capitalist economy that inculcate and instill and reproduce what at first glance looks like a bunch of moral choices, a bunch of sort of ethical lapses. These, these moral choices and these ethical lapses are in many ways the secondary effect of something deeper, which is this structural dynamics of this mode of production. And to further this discussion on value to the present context, in various places around the globe, gas prices are reaching historic highs, which I understand largely to be the result of the convergence of both a decrease in supply and an increase in demand. And within these conversations, I largely only hear people address the supply part of the equation, which is something that I would personally challenge, but I do want to start there. Some people talk about our need to green light more drilling projects in order to increase supply, at least for the short term, to alleviate the strain of this increased price of gas, especially for working class and low income people. And at the same time, others talk about our need to use this opportunity to really amp up our supply of alternative energy, such as solar and wind, in order to accelerate this quote unquote green energy transition. But there are also costs to this as well, because that increase in supply would require the expansion of mining projects disproportionately in the global south. So as you consider visions like the Green New Deal, while having a clear understanding of global politics and war, I wonder how you see this path forward interacting with the other social factors we talked about in the catastrophic convergence and how it might affect or shift our resource conflicts around the world. Well, I am feeling increasingly cynical about all of this stuff and I'm feeling cynical primarily because of the COVID pandemic. I wrote a big piece for Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal's publication about what the left got wrong on COVID. The COVID pandemic, which is to say, to some extent, the disease, but primarily the lockdowns, which created this tremendous economic crisis, and then this massive rise in indebtedness, it ranked, it almost ranks up, it's maybe the second most profound political event of my adult life. I think the most profound one, as in having the most significance, long term and in geostrategic sense is the collapse of actually existing communism. But this is an enormous change in the politics of everyday life. And the left has, in my opinion, completely failed to meet the test of this. So it's hard for me to answer your question without bringing it up to the present and looking at the, the response to the coronavirus pandemic, which I think has been marked by hysteria and overestimation of the danger of the disease, complete 
you know, gullibility about the effectiveness and safety, but primarily the effectiveness of the vaccines. And I say this as a heavily vaccinated person. I'm one of the rare people in this country, perhaps, maybe not too rare, but I'm one of the rare people in this country who's not worried about monkeypox because I'm already jabbed for smallpox because I was a journalist for 10 years traveling in the global south. So I mean, I'm not against vaccines, but a real vaccine is like the smallpox vaccine. You get it once, it lasts your whole life, and it covers not only the named disease, but lo and behold, some other ones as well. And this like four jabs and you still get sick. I mean, come on. I mean, all right. We have to grant the disease, uh, the, the vaccines, the fact that they do reduce death and uh, hospitalization, uh, it would seem, particularly among the elderly. But to act like th these vaccines can drive the disease to extinction the way the polio vaccine did, I mean, that's obviously not the case. Rochelle Walensky, head of the, the CDC, last summer started saying that the vaccines cannot stop transmission and they don't, and they don't, they don't stop transmission and they don't stop infection. Yet the left has embraced these lockdowns, embraced mandates in which people are get, losing their jobs, embraced a regime of showing your papers, a surveillance regime that they never would have embraced if it had been done in the name of the war on terror or something like that, but because it's this nominally, you know, scientific, purely apolitical thing like a disease, everyone's critical faculties have gone out the window. So I am made very, very cynical by that. And in terms of your, you know, so that's the larger context for thinking about inflation, the energy crisis, climate change. Right now, like the Democrats have squandered an opportunity and they did that not by mistake, but they did that because they are a, a fundamentally authoritarian, deeply like, you know, pro oligarchic party that is as committed to repression as the Republicans are though along different lines and probably more committed to global militarism than the Republicans are. If we we're to take the count of the vote in the House and Senate for the $40 billion of military aid to Ukraine, it would seem that the Republican Party is the anti-war party. They had 157 votes against, and not a single Democrat in the House or the Senate voted against it. And this is appalling, you know? And so in terms of the Green New Deal, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat soured on it as a concept because the squad can't vote for $40 billion of proxy war in Ukraine and still with a straight face talk about the needs of the global South. This is going to have massive and terrible impacts on people in the global South funding, fueling this war. And I'm not defending Vladimir Putin. I'm not saying, oh, the Russians should have invaded. I'm just saying that the U.S. pouring money into this war is going to kill a lot of people in the global South who won't be able to afford grain and who will have to ration grain and whose children will become malnourished and then succumb to diseases that they otherwise would have survived. Like hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people over the next five to 10 years will die as a result of the price shocks to the food markets that are a direct, these price shocks are a direct result of that $40 billion vote that Bernie Sanders and the squad voted for. So it becomes a lot more difficult for me to take seriously notions of the Green New Deal. That said, what should happen is that the government has to shift its structure of subsidies away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. And that's happening to some extent, but not enough. We went through the crisis of 2008 and then the crisis of the coronavirus lockdown shocks. And in each of those, there were massive amounts of public money advanced and very little, if any, demands or stipulations upon that money that it go into building out real renewable energy infrastructure. So I am, I am extremely cynical about the ability of the American left to achieve really anything on that front. Mm. 
In 2012, you wrote an article for The Nation sharing, to adapt to climate change will mean coming together on a large scale and mobilizing society's full range of resources. In other words, big storms require big government, end quote. This intuitively makes sense, though. I wonder, first of all, if your views on this has changed over the last decade and whether you see big government as equating with the centralization of power. Because I get the sense from a lot of people I've interviewed before that a lot of activists and community leaders see the decentralization of power as necessary for social justice, for community-based sovereignty and self-determination, and for healing place-based ecosystems, with the solutions being more bottom-up than top-down. So I'd be curious to hear your thought process on why you think big government is necessary in the face of the climate crisis and Mm -hmm. how this would affect the so far seemingly unjust trend of the centralization of control and power. I am not in favor of the over-centralization of power. And what the, you know, climate change will make you love big government. That article was about, not about centralization, but about the role of government. And it used the example of storms in the Northeast, in New York and Vermont, where I'm from, And, uh, you know, the extreme weather of climate change forces the state to come back in. And I have been, since Tropic of Chaos came out, I've been saying that, you know, the state is coming back. But the open question is, what form will it take? Will it be a a repressive police state or will, will it be a state rooted in planning and redistribution and increasingly serving the collective whole rather than the oligarchic few? through repression, et cetera. And what what has happened is that indeed, one crisis after the other, the state has come forward and been forced into the breach to to kind of patch capitalism back up and relaunch it, but not in a progressive fashion, in an increasingly authoritarian and top-down way. So I'm not blanket in favor of big government. The argument was that big government is going to become more and more central to our lives, whether we like it or not. And therefore, the question is, what kind of government? So the one here, okay, so I just, in answer to the previous question, gave you a rather probably sour-sounding, cynical rant there. But here's one thing, I think. I think in some ways that actually the infrastructure bill that Biden passed is going to be very interesting to see how it plays out in practice even though climate change was not part of how that was discussed, pitched, it's fundamentally implied. If you're providing lots and lots of public money for infrastructure, well, that necessarily implies climate change because what's going to affect infrastructure? For example, where I live in Western Massachusetts, the local utility, thanks to deregulation under Bill Clinton, is skimping on repair and maintenance on its lines. And I mean, I should back up when I say the local utility, what am I talking about? We don't even have a local utility. We have an insane situation in which when a tree comes down and the lines in this little neighborhood I live in go down, literally this, because this happened not too long ago, literally five different companies have to show up. The company that owns the lines, which it turns out they no longer sell power or anything in this area, but they own the lines. The several companies that sell power in this area, the several companies that do cable and, you know, if anyone even has landlines anymore, I don't think they do. And it was like, you know, literally five different companies had to show up to patch together a very minor little problem whereby one tree took out the lines on one dead-end street that affected probably a total of about 20 households. So there is no longer a utility. There is instead this deregulated, insane ecosystem of totally dysfunctional, frequently dishonest profiteering firms controlling infrastructure. But that's just the, the context for the problem that it sets up, which is that all of the telephone poles upon which everything is hung here, it's not just telephones, you know, it's the power, et cetera. They're all rotting. And so because the company that maintains these lines 
I forget which company it is, isn't under regulatory pressure from the federal government to invest in maintenance. These poles, they're, they're not replacing them. Instead, what they do is they take pieces of guardrail from the highway, aluminum guardrail, and they, they, they'll patch the rotting bottom of the pole with guardrail and they'll sp spray paint it kind of brown, the color of the wood. Well, next time a the remnants of a hurricane finally make it this far inland into the mountains, they're going to take down, it's going to take down so many of these poles. And that's going to force the return of government because these firms are not capable of dealing with this. And so that's what, that's what I meant by the kind of the way that climate change forces the return of big government. So getting back to the, the infrastructure bill, even though climate change isn't named, climate change is what's going on. There's a massive storm complex in the center of the country right now, or there was, there was a risk of it. I, was, I don't know if it actually materialized, but saw that yesterday. These kinds of things, you know, hurricanes, floods, this, this assault on infrastructure is all about climate change. So then the question becomes, thanks to this infrastructure bill, bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed, then the question I think becomes, what can states and localities do with this money? Can they use the money as a form of climate adaptation, even though it wasn't billed as such? And I think the answer is very much yes, they can. And that a lot of kinds of climate adaptation are, are happening under other names, just like rebuilding stuff. You know, it's like, okay, well, rebuild it, you know, a little higher, rebuild it in a safer way, you know, bury the lines if you can, like whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's about adaptation. But there's the problem of mitigation. And we're not, we do not have the policies that we need, which should be euthanizing the fossil fuel industry and building out the renewable energy industry. And I say that not as someone who thinks capitalism is in the long run sustainable. I don't think it is sustainable, but it is imperative that actually existing capitalism build out as much green infrastructure as possible if there is any chance of future social arrangements of achieving sustainability. Oh, there's so much here, but... I think for me, only addressing the supply side of the energy equation, thinking about how we either increase supply or shift the source of the supply of energy, even if towards expanding solar and wind by way of expanding mining projects, largely is a question about harm redirection and the outsourcing or shifting around of extraction and who pays the price for it, which is why I've been curious to think through how we can systemically unravel centralized and industrialized production systems and actually lower the energy intensiveness of those systems, in part perhaps by realigning them with the place-based landscapes and what they can each readily support. But I'm still processing my thoughts on this and wonder what you've thought of as our possible ways forward to not have our solutions just shift around our resource conflicts and outsource environmental burdens, but actually to help us heal both global injustice and overextraction. So this is a very meta answer. I think actually what has to happen is and this is like not short term when I say med, it's like long term, it's like big picture that like sustainability for modern human civilization, among other things, requires an increase in the energy content of goods and services that we actually have to increase energy consumption while at the same time moving off of fossil fuels. The good news is the earth is not a closed system. It's an open system. Every day we are bombarded by more solar energy or maybe the same amount of solar energy that civilization has used in its entire existence, right? So there's actually no shortage of energy. It's just a question of how are you going to grab it? We use solar energy when we burn fossil fuels. It's just millions of years old. So we have to use the current solar energy. There's lots and lots of energy. The question for a sustainable modernity at a global scale is about moving from this fossil fuel-based economy 
to what is fundamentally a solar economy. That means, you know, wind, hydro, all that. Those are forms of solar energy because they're all driven by the energy that comes from the sun. The only form of energy that's not solar energy is geothermal energy because that comes from the molten core of the earth. But the other, fundamentally, the source of the energy is the sun. And it takes different forms. It can be photosynthesis, prehistoric ferns compressed into coal and oil, or it can be heat that that drives wind cycles on on the terrestrial earth. And it can be, you know, the heat that drives evaporation and the, the hydro cycle and then becomes hydropower, this sort of stuff, right? So it's like those are the two choices. The energy that comes from the earth, from the center of the earth, the energy that comes from the sun. And there's actually enormous amounts of energy, if you think big picture. There's infinite amounts of energy. And our mission is to transition off of fossil fuels towards these renewable energies. In terms of what you're saying about reducing consumption, I mean, I, I agree with that as a principle, like a principle in terms of efficiency. That's part of the transition. But it can't be a grounding principle for understanding what a sustainable modern civilization will look like. The other choice is to reject modernity and accept a massive die-off of the human population. And I'm not down with that. Some people are. A certain kind of environmentalist greets that with, with alacrity and glee. Not me. I like people and I like my species and I like civilization, even though I complain about it a lot. I don't want to see it collapse. So if you're committed, as I am, to a continuation of some version of the civilization, not of capitalism, but of this modern civilization, then I think we have to accept that, that we can't do that only through a kind of austerity, through a, a, you know, a ratcheting down of energy consumption. As part of the transition, we certainly do have to constantly be thinking about efficiency. But ultimately, there's a lot of energy out there. It's solar power, and we need to harness it. So like to bring this down, that might have been a little abstract. Farmed fish is energy intensive. Indoor farming is energy intensive. There are vegetable farms at a essentially experimental scale that are built in abandoned coal mines and in old abandoned, not abandoned, but you know, in former industrial buildings. And all of the inputs are brought there with energy through electricity, water is brought in, artificial light, artificial temperature. And frequently there doesn't need to be pesticides applied because these can, these can be controlled environments. These are very, very energy intensive ways of farming. If that's done based on fossil fuels, it's a colossal mistake and a disaster. But if that kind of energy intensive vegetable farming, fish farming could be done based on the infinite power of the sun, then who cares what the energy content is? The, the only question is, do we have the technology and the social resources to produce the technology at scale necessary to capture that energy? Mm. I guess part of the challenge now is that the infrastructure needed to convert the infinite solar energy into forms that are usable to power civilization aren't renewable themselves. Yeah. And also there's also the, the question implied in implied in, in what you're saying is the the non-energy related stuff about how a green transition involves mining and despoiling ecosystems. And it does. I don't know way around that. There has to be better versions of it. It has to be done not for profit. If global mining was operated according to the logic of human civilization rather than profit maximization, it wouldn't be without any detrimental impact to existing ecosystems, but it would be potentially much less. That's something that has to be mitigated along the way. And there's also enormous amounts of many of the resources that we need already existing, but they're in landfills. So it's about catching valuable resources and, and extracting them, finding ways of like of recycling not at 
the scale of households, but at the scale of whole regional metabolisms. So as a final added note, I'm not sure I agreed with quite a few things there, like the sustainability of intensive agriculture and the assumption that a decrease in our collective use of energy and electricity equates with a collapse of human civilization. Because in a way for me that dehumanizes the many thriving communities today who don't have the same energy intensiveness in their lives and cultures when compared to the most extractive corporations and those reliant on industrialized and centralized systems. So I think there's a lot more to unpack there in the future since this was the end of our time here. But in the meantime, we have had a lot of past episodes with different angles and takeaways on energy and agriculture that I encourage people to check out. And also real quick while we're here, I want to express that I think it's important for us to use this as a reminder that people are complex and there are many people interested in supporting sustainability and social justice and public health and have these shared intentions and values, but who may be based on having different cultural or educational backgrounds or social influences, have different visions of what our paths forward looks like. And I think that has been quite evident with our over 300 interviews with different people who have varying and sometimes even conflicting perspectives. So as with every conversation on this show, I really hope these diverse narratives encourage us to keep recalibrating our critical lenses and learning from more sources and voices and yeah, just not taking anything at face value, even things that I say because I've been wrong before and I've evolved my thinking so much over the years and I still have more questions than answers for the most part, which is why I personally just I want to be exposed to as many different views as possible because for me, they help me to, first of all, understand this movement better and understand the complexity of people better, but also because I think this is how I can arrive as close to the quote-unquote truth as possible. So I just wanted to add this note. And with that, we are now going into our closing fire round questions. On the day the rains came, there was a lover's song. The kind that takes you by surprise like it hasn't in so long The earth was dry, the leaves were brown, you've seen it all before But on this day the rains came, you said you wanted more So come the drought and come the rain, come the pleasure, come the pain I will be there What has been an impactful book that you've read or a publication you follow? Right now I'm reading States of Emergency by Keith Vanderpeel. And I'm also reading Scorched Earth by Jonathan Crary, Beyond the Digital Age. It's a critique of social media and online addiction. But some of my favorite books are uh, that I would recommend to your listeners are Francis Stoner Saunders' book, The Cultural Cold War, CIA and the World of Arts and Letters. And, oh, well, there's so many books. Yeah, I could go on and on. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Personal practice that keeps me grounded is not being on social media and not being overly involved with screens. So that's the practice I try to maintain, but I actually, like everyone, am constantly engaged with screens and I, I don't like that. So so resisting that, you know, physical exercise and, and resisting the the constant domination of screens. And what is your biggest source of inspiration right now? My biggest source of inspiration right now are journalists such as Ryan Grimm and Max Blumenthal who are standing up to the orthodoxy around COVID and investigating 
the question of the lab leak and questioning the necessity. Ryan doesn't do this, but Max Ryan Ryan questions the the lab leak is is doing very good research on that the origin of this whole pandemic, which is very clearly seems to be U.S. funded research that by mistake went wrong, and we should not be doing this gain of function research. And he has been. Ryan Grimm has been very diligent on that and bring it to a wider audience. I think that gives me a lot of inspiration. Max Blumenthal's critique of the the U.S. funding of the Ukraine war is very important. Uh, Aaron Mate also doing fantastic work in that regard. So younger journalists who are, you know, they're not that young, but they're like a little younger than me, who are pushing back against the consensus against the quote unquote, you know, in the Gramscian sense, common sense, i.e. received opinion of the society on some of the most charged questions for the left. And while being leftists pushing back against not only the elite narrative, but the left consensus around those elite narratives, that gives me a lot of inspiration. Mm. Well, we previously had Max Blumenthal on the show before, and we talked about, you know, really challenging what credibility means and looking at the media industrial complex. So I highly recommend our listeners go back to listen to that episode if you haven't yet. But Christian, thank you so much for joining me on the show here. Several past guests had mentioned your work and your name, so it's been an honor to have you here. For now, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Oh, wow, that's hard. Be here now. Enjoy. Don't get too caught up in those screens. And uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Good luck with everything. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and critical conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Come the Rain by Maggie Clifford. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.